Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Head of Athletic Performance and Science at Irish Rugby, Nick Winkleman. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Vald Performance, the team behind the Nordboard hamstring testing system. So the Nordboard is the fastest and easiest and most accurate way to measure hamstring strength in under 90 seconds. So the Nordboard gives the right information so you can make the right decisions for your players at the right time. So it's already in use by over half the Premier League uh, and dozens of other elite teams around the world. Uh, so the Nordboard testing system is the is on its way to becoming the gold standard for measuring and monitoring hamstring strength. So if you are interested in getting to know anything more about the Nordboard, you can visit Vald Performance, that's V-A-L-D performance.com to find out more. Thanks for tuning in to episode 93 of the Pace Performance Podcast. So Nick Winkleman coming up on this episode, so I'm gonna keep this introduction nice and short. So anyone that knows Nick, will know that he's a fantastic speaker. So if you're interested in speed training, coaching science, motivation, leadership, you're in for an absolute treat. Just before we get into the chat with Nick, we've got a small segment from Coach Me Plus. So thanks again for them for sponsoring the episode today. And they are gonna discuss uh, coaching management for two or three minutes. Um, really interesting little uh, little segment every other week from Coach Me Plus. Um, so thanks again to them guys hope you enjoy the chat with Nick uh, and I'll speak to you soon in this segment we're going to talk about front end data management and being a good steward of your data and when I talk about front end management I'm really talking about having continuous identifiers across multiple hardware platforms I've seen a lot of people collect data from heart rate, heart rate variability, GPS, velocity-based training, wellness questionnaire data, and all the data that we're collecting as coaches seems to be increasing. That's okay, but what's happening that I've seen is when you go to do any type of back-end analysis, you don't have the same identifier across hardware platforms, and that makes it really cumbersome to do any type of data marrying of different hardware sources because we don't have the same identifier. So for example, if I've got Ethan Owens on my team and he wears a GPS device and in that system he's capital E and capital O in his first and last name, but in another hardware device like say my heart rate device, he's Ethan Owens and it's all lowercase. When I go to try and marry up those data sources for any type of analysis, they're basically their own unique person in the within the hardware system. So when I marry them up, they don't match together those data sources. The same thing happens if you have, let's say, heart rate and GPS, and you do different naming conventions within those systems for your session data. So for example, in my GPS, if I have warm-up as capital W and capital U, but in my warm-up in my heart rate system, I have it all lowercase. When I go to, let's say, compare heart, my warm-ups across training camp data, then I'm going to have a bunch of different sessions because I'm not marrying up those data sources with the same naming convention. So you want to make sure that when you're doing any type of analysis on the back end, you put a lot more work on the front end and making sure that your data is managed well. And that includes naming conventions within your session data and your naming conventions amongst your players and your apostrophes and your punctuation. Again, this will help with making sure that your backend analysis doesn't require you to spend as much time cleaning your data and you can spend more time analyzing your data and making sure that whatever the data is telling you you are being able to glean your insights out of that instead of cleaning your data. To get your weekly dose of applied sports science updates, go to CoachMePlus.com and subscribe to our weekly newsletter. That's CoachMePlus.com. Thanks for tuning into the Pace Performance Podcast. 
So today we've got the new Head of Athletic Performance and Science at Irish Rugby Union, uh, Nick Winkleman. So welcome to the podcast, Nick. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor. Absolute pleasure. So anyone that doesn't know you, um, do you just want to give them a little bit of a, a background on yourself uh, and maybe finish yeah. off that segment on what, you just, what you're currently doing now? Yeah. So I've been a strength and conditioning coach for about 15 years now. I did my undergraduate in exercise science at Oregon State University, worked at Exos, formerly known as Athletes Performance, for just about 10 years, and in that last role, operated as our director of education, overseeing both our online and face-to-face coach education programs, which I'm proud to say are now taught in about 22 different countries, as well as overseeing, for the most most part, our NFL Combine Development Program uh, for the better part of seven of those 10 years. And then I've worked with just about every type and category of athlete from gen pop, elite military through NFL, NBA, so on and so forth. So very proud that I diverse kind of upbringing. And as of April 1st, as you stated, I'm the new head of athletic performance and science living here in Dublin for the Irish Rugby Football Union. And I have the absolute honor of supporting really every level of our national team, men and women, sevens, fifteens, all the way down through our four provinces that obviously all operate in the Pro 12. So definitely get to be a, a supporter and a raving fan of the amazing SNC culture in this country and just help bring our systems that continue to elevate our sport and hopefully help us accumulate more wins and get more people involved. Absolutely. So you managed to get around the, you've visited all the four provinces yet? Yep. I've been around, I'm coming up on my third time now. Okay. So I'm right. happy, happy to say that got some face time quite quickly, especially towards the end of the season, which can be difficult, but it's been great. Good. So everything's settling in okay in the Irish lifestyle? Obviously, everyone's going to ask about the Guinness. Everyone's going to ask about the yeah, Guinness. About the, about, about yeah, the Guinness, Guinness and potatoes, I go to quite often. Yeah, you know what? You know, Rob, I've been here three times prior. I loved it. I always joke. I think when you ask every American, you know, top five places you want to visit in the world, just about everyone has Ireland somewhere, I think, in their top three yeah. on their bucket list. And we were no different, have Irish heritage. So I've been here three times prior. The landscape, the culture the cityscape in Dublin, the ability to see so many different parts that are all just so old and unique and just the people themselves phenomenal. And I'm a big fan of Guinness. My wife's a big (laughs) fan of Guinness. It does taste different here in Dublin. That is for sure. Had it at the Guinness factory. So no, it's, it's all good. We're settling in and credit to the, to the people that I work with and just the Irish people in general, we have just been welcomed with open arms. We've had afternoon tea with just about all of our neighbors as authentic as anything you would want it to be. It was, so it's great here. Good. 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 So I just want to touch on something that we kind of discussed uh, a little bit beforehand which was yeah. the, the, the influences uh, that you have. Do you just want to talk to us maybe a little bit about the influences that you had growing up and maybe why you got into the industry and the, and the kind of influences there and then maybe uh, the influences that you have now and maybe the people that you reach out to now for to, to learn yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when I was young in high school, I think high school for most of us and looking back is a critical turning point or secondary school, as they say over here. And whether or not we know it at the time, it's obviously the the experiences, especially in our first 18 years of life, that really start to drive us down one path over another. So to keep it fairly brief, you know, when I was in high school, played multiple sports, you know, loved, loved athletics, loved weightlifting, and we talk about influencers Rudy was our strength and conditioning coach. He was in the gym from 2.30 to 5.30, five days a week, and really taught us as young football players, American football players, as much about being a person as he did about being a a professional, let alone knowing how to manage a weight room. So I look at him probably really being my first mentor, and I talk about him whenever I get a chance, and credit to him, he really taught us as much about life as he did about anything to do with weight training. But one thing that he played a particularly large role in for me is, 
you know, when I was, you know, was a sophomore in high school, just generally speaking, you know, I, I didn't look on the outside how I felt on the inside or how I, I thought I felt on the inside. So albeit that I would, had a family that ate well and played a bunch of sports, I just wanted to lean out, keep it simple. And through his advisement, as well as my grandfather getting me aligned with the nutritionist, which back at the time wasn't a very common, you know, professional to have access to. The nutritionist really showed me the way of, of how to manage diet. Rudy really showed me the way of how to manage strength and conditioning, speed and agility. And I just had the definitive motivation to finally make a change while, while I was playing sport, doing this on top. And over the course of about eight months, just under a year, I was able to make quite a big called body transformation. And while a body transformation for me was the means what I got out of it was, was a general quality. And that general quality was this, in that I saw these individuals that put their heart and soul unselfishly into me and my goals and wanted to do what they could to help me see them through. And kind of, the, I, I set a pinnacle moment in my mind's eye that when I walked into school my junior year, quite literally, I was at probably the pinnacle of my fitness at that moment. I finally was looked at on the outside as I had always felt on the inside. And it was in that moment that I knew through whatever means likely that I wanted to dedicate my life to helping others find that feeling. And it just so happened since my pathway was through fitness and strength and conditioning, that was the pathway that I chose to help other individuals. But as I get older, I can see myself wanting to help people fulfill that, that personal goal, that personal sense of accomplishment through more ways than just strength and conditioning and fitness. So, so that kind of drove me into college, wanting to get into exercise and sports science, where I met my next mentor, Guido van Rysigum. And Guido was born in Belgium, fought tooth over nail to get his family over to the United States, walked straight into the Seattle Seahawks, got a job interview, wasn't quite ready, but they were so impressed by his, his work ethic and what it took to bring his family over that they, they kind of gave him guidance on how to get into pro baseball. And Guido, while I met him at Oregon State University, had worked in pro ball for about 14 years. And in him, I saw someone that was the most intelligent person I had ever met from a strength and conditioning or otherwise let alone his thirst for learning how to learn. It was this intangible skill set that you knew he was just going to continue to get better. So again, I learned as much from him about how, what it meant to be a great person, a great professional, as I did you know, the raw X's and O's of, of S&C and, and injury. He then introduced me to Mark Verstegen because he knew Mark Verstegen when he was in Florida working for the Baltimore Orioles. So once he felt that I was ready, he put in a call. And that call with three of my four years in undergrad working with him inevitably got me my internship at Exos, at the time Athletes Performance. And I was hired before it was even over in 06. So Mark Verstegen, Luke Richardson, Daryl Eto, Joe Gomes, all guys now who are operating in the NFL were my mentors while I was there and still to this day had, had taught me such valuable lessons that they resonate with me pretty much on a daily basis. So if, if I fast forward to today, those have been kind of the primary mentors that have, have really, if you would, shaped my career. And I think across all of those mentors, they taught me a valuable lesson. And that was you have to be self-sufficient. You have to depend on yourself in terms of your professional development. And while you need to surround yourself with a network, seek to have mentors, you need to own your process. You cannot not be a passive observer of your own professional development. And thus, you need to be an active learner. And I think in this day and age, it's an important side comment. And I said this at Perform Better in Orlando a couple weeks ago. In that so many of us, I believe at least, allow Twitter and Facebook to drive what we learn on any given day. And whatever happens to be in that news feed, whatever blogs, interesting comments, research articles, that drives kind of our next step. Versus deeply reflecting on what we do day in, day out. Identifying what our strengths are and exploiting them. And equally so, identifying where opportunities for improvement are through daily noticing 
and use those opportunities to drive our next best step around professional development. I'll never forget Joe Gomes and I, Joe Gomes is now the head SSC at the Raiders. I was telling him about all these books that I was reading, right? I was trying to impress him. And he looks at me, he's like, put all that aside. He's like, Nick, what's most important to you right now? What is the skill set, the trait right now that is going to put you ahead and allow you most importantly to benefit the clients and athletes in front of you? And all of a sudden, it told me by that question, gosh, 70% of the stuff I'm reading right now is irrelevant. I'm reading it, but it's going to go in one ear out the other because I have no practical utility for it right now, day in, day out. So for me, that's always driven then how I focus my own education, how I identify mentors, and even how I decide, you know, who should I have a conversation with right now to get the most out of it in terms of, again, my athletes. Because for me, it always comes back to how is my my professional development, influencing the people that I'm supporting day in, day out, going back to my high school, because that's my center why, helping people achieve their moment, helping people achieve their end goal. So that then can lead us to today in terms of my influencers. We talked about this before we got on the call. I spend a lot more time, and I think you hear a lot of professionals inevitably get to this point. While I read the, the X's and O's, a lot of my X and o, X's and O's, excuse me, comes from research. When it comes to books, I'm reading well outside of our field. Like right now, I'm looking at my shelf. I have the new one by Ryan Holiday, Ego is the Enemy. I'm picking up one just because my, my English teacher told me to read it, and now I'm finally appreciating him. You know, Walden by Henry David Thoreau, uh, a book I talk about all the time, The Invisible Gorilla, talking about attention. And then finally, as someone now that's in more of a leadership position, and I need to cultivate best practices, Creativity by Ed Catmull. So these are all diverse readings, but again, I can pinpoint why I selected each one. And as we discussed, when I read something really powerful, I like to reach out to the author. And more often than not, in due time, they'll reach back out and be willing to have a nice chat with you. Because, and this is a long-winded answer, I'll, I'll leave my answer with this. <laughs> I believe that people have answers to questions they've never asked. So oftentimes, you might have these burning questions, and you're finding that our field has not gotten to the point yet where they've been able to answer those questions. So I seek outside of our field in related areas and pitch them the question. I remember I talked to an evolutionary biologist. She studies monkeys for goodness sake. But I sat down, <laughs> I sat down Rob and I pitched her skill acquisition questions for about an hour. And once we got past the fact that I didn't care it wasn't or wasn't her field, I wasn't gonna hold her feet to the fire, that from a research perspective, she was getting outside of scope. I said, let's have fun with this. I just want to get your insights on these questions. And I tell you what, Rob, it was one of the best conversations I've ever had because you better believe it, she had answers to my questions because she had the unique insights, but she had never applied her insights to to the area that I operate in, which was human performance. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thanks for that, Nick. Appreciate that. So you could, you could say you, you kind of periodize in your CPD as, <laughs> as you would with your training. Like, that's right. Uh, no, right. I, I, I've never, I've never put it, I've never put it that way, but I mean, I think if you look at books like the, you know, seven habits of highly effective people, or if you ever actually get to see Todd Durkin present, he will discuss structuring his week in such a way where everything has great purpose. Now I'm by no means that definitive, but I, I, I do treasure my time and I appreciate focus. So in some ways, yes, I periodize based on relevance. Mm -hmm. So who, who, who's the, who's the most obscure person that you've reached out to as in obscure furthest away from SNC that you've gained the most from in yeah, relation I, to your job? I, I really think it's gotta be the gal I just mentioned okay. there, yeah. Louise, Louise Barrett. Uh, B-A-R-R-E-T-T, -T, I believe, first name Louise. She's a researcher in Canada. She wrote a book called Beyond the Brain, and it covers everything from dynamic systems, you know, ecology, environmental design, monkeys and robots, and really just starts to tie in a bunch of different obscure areas that are more connected than you would think at first glance back to the brain. And she's attacking it from the standpoints that, you know, things emerge through the balance of the body or the organism, the task, 
in the environment. And for me, that had relevance because that's also a theory that many people have applied to motor learning and skill acquisition. We, we typically call it a constraint-led approach to learning. And so that's why I read the book and reached out to her, Dr. Roy Sugarman. He's from Australia. He made the recommendation. And again, I reached out. She was happy enough. She was flattered that someone from such an obscure field, from her perspective, would want to have a chat. And her book was intriguing, well-written, and just you know, you'll highlight the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned um, a couple of times coaching science. And this, yes. is, this is something, like I said before, I was – catching up on a, a couple more of your podcasts that you've, you've done previously over the weekend and this morning, you've kind of defined it in a couple, a couple of times and I'd encourage people to also get them podcasts and listen to, to you again. But can you just define what coaching science is firstly, and then maybe a little bit about what, what, why is this little niche, why you've found that so interesting and wanting to dig deeper? So, you know, for me, coaching science in its simplest form are the underpinning principles for learning mo movement skills, right? So, again, while coaching can be applied to things that are not necessarily movement-based, at least when it comes to our field, coaching science is the underpinning principles that lead to effective and efficient motor learning or skill acquisition. Uh, what initially brought me into it was, like most things in life, necessity. So when I took over the NFL Combine Development Program at Athletes Performance, as I said earlier, I was adopting it from strength coaches now that in their own right are in the NFL. One of them, Luke Richardson, just won a Super Bowl with the Denver Broncos. So the methodology that I was adopting, the X's and O's, if you would, was quite fine-tuned and well-informed. Now, while I made changes over the years, by no means were they immense. So when I looked at the problem, the problem was this. I had a great program, and I wanted to know, selfishly, I'm a young S&C coach, how do I make it better? But at the same time, uh, there's complexity to this problem because the athletes that we get are straight out of college. They're the elite of the elite. They're they already come in big, fast, and strong. Yet the athletes and their agents pay us a fair amount of money to get them bigger, faster, and stronger, all the while not only having those qualities influence their performance at the combine, but successfully prepare them for their first preseason, which amounts to the longest season in any American football player's career all the while keeping the cognitive and the mindset in check because the easiest thing for these guys to get derailed is to focus too much on the outcome and not enough on the process and in the process lose the work that was required to get the outcome that they desired. So as I looked at this, I said, well, gosh, the program is, is going to be what it's going to be. We can't get more time. We don't need more equipment. We don't need more space. How can I get more out of the process that we're running? And inevitably, to ideas I had in college, where I was just constantly intrigued how a novice coach versus an elite coach, the biggest difference I noticed was not in what they did, but how they did it and what they said. So I started digging in deeper to understand, is there a science underpinning what we commonly are told is the art of coaching? And as I dug in, and this process for me really probably began in 2007, 2008, I opened up my old motor learning books and I read them you know cover to cover and I found that gosh there's an amazing science here that is well over at this point pushing 50 years old informed by philosophy that's thousands of years old and this is hard science that's been done not just in a lab but on practical skills with a lot of studies being repeated time and again giving us definitive principles but oftentimes these principles are being neglected they're not being used. And I believe they're being neglected and not being used for the simple fact that the information has not bubbled up. No one has really come out of the research trenches, out of the lab, to scream at the top of the mountaintops, hey guys, there's a better way to coach. And for simple terms, information, the principles that I'm talking about can be boiled down two big categories of implicit learning, 
which is simply put, learning through experience, getting better, but not necessarily knowing the means with which you're getting better. You talk to an elite basketball player or footballer and you say, how did you do that? How did you execute that skill when time was not on your side and you had to score to win? How did you do it? And they say, I don't know. I just did. That is the epitome, the countless ESPN and Sky Sport interviews <laughs> of implicit learning, right? But from a coaching perspective, we can facilitate that. We facilitate that through how we design environments, how we design practice, how we design weight room session, down to exercise order, rest between exercises, to the drills themselves, what they constrain and what they allow for. These are all ways that science has empowered us with understanding of learning through experience. The other side of it, which is probably more readily uh, attributable to coaching science, is explicit learning, where now our goal is to put explicit thoughts and ideas in the athlete's head with the sole intent of if they think about these things before, during, or after the movement, it will somehow get that learning to stick, thus it's retained and it's transferred to the field of play. And that categorically is oftentimes instruction, cueing, which is a, a brief form of instruction, right? And then feedback. And while feedback can come in, in verbal and nonverbal ways, such as watching a video, it's still explicit learning because you're explicitly giving them information. And that information in some way is meant to improve the subsequent repetitions uh, beyond and beyond. Now, those are the two categories. What we are solely concerned about, and I'll go back to the beginning, is principles that underpin motor learning. Now, notice I say motor learning not necessarily motor performance, because this is probably the biggest, as they say here, be in the bonnet for me, <laughs> is there is a big gap between the performance we see during practice, what is observable when I am coaching, and the learning that is expressed from that practice in a delayed sense, so in two or three practice to come, or on the pitch during a match. And what we know now quite clearly as performance during practice is not mutually exclusive with the retention of that performance and the expression at the later date. In fact, the vast majority of methods that are currently employed during practice go completely against the grain of what the motor learning principles say we should do. And that's the tough part because when practice is facilitated by a coach, what people forget is we become an extension of the athlete's cognitive space. We are putting ideas in their head. We are controlling what they think about. So while we are present, we can in some ways control all the outcome of the performance of their movement. But the problem is oftentimes those methods don't allow information quite literally to sink down to the brain centers where retention actually exists. And it's only in retention that we see true learning. And that is the key area that I focus on is starting to dismantle methods that we think are in fact efficacious that couldn't be farther from the truth. So how do we go about maximizing that retention that you talked about? Yes. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're all after, for them to transfer what you're doing on the pitch, on the track, in the gym, onto the field. Yep. So let's, let's start with explicit learning then. Okay. So there's two major things that for, for the audience that hasn't heard me talk before, and for those that have, I want to reinforce. Okay. The first one, just generally speaking, is around communication. So when we talk about instruction and cueing and feedback, specifically when we are trying to give information to change acutely the movement pattern that's in front of us, whether it be tennis, kicking, weightlifting, kettlebell swing, whatever it is, motor skill in general. So this specifically starts to focus in on my area of research, whereby there is categorically two kinds of cues. Now, 
my work would say that it's probably more on a scale, but for simplicity's sake, two categories of cues. Cues can either draw people inward or they can draw people outward. So inward cues are called internal focus cues, drive people towards thinking about joint motion, such as extend your hip, extend your elbow, flex your shoulder, right, chest up hips forward, whatever it might be, or muscle action, squeeze your glute, tighten your abs, tighten your chest, tighten your triceps, so on and so forth. So we, we've all given these cues, and frankly, this is the language we're taught in our degree programs through kinesiology, biomechanics, and exercise physiology. We are given the language quite literally of the body, and that's oftentimes the language that we divulge or give to our clients and athletes when we're teaching movement because really it's what we are drawn to think is correct it's how we are taught it in the first place conversely to draw someone outward we could call these external cues where we focus on either the movement outcome jump as high as you can run as fast as you can put the ball here on the court put the ball here in the net or we could talk about the effect on the environment kick the ball here put the racket and the ball at this relationship push the ground away to jump as high as you can, explode off the line as you sprint towards the opponent. So we can kind of see here there's a dichotomy of drawing inward and drawing drawing outward. Now, if you ask most coaches which are better, they're going to give you the, the massive it depends. And you say it depends on what? Well, it depends on context. It depends on the skill you're teaching. It depends on injured, non-injured. They give you all of these very logical, intuitive answers. But the reality is, the science does not support equal support for both. Rather, I think in my dissertation, there's north of 200 papers, probably of which 150 to 180 fall into this category of, of cueing, or what they say in the science world, attentional focus. And at this point, we look at men, women, those who are able-bodied and those who have a, some level of disability. We look at simple skills such as balance or a ski simulator all the way down to standing still to much more complex skills such as kicking throwing hitting sports specific skills or excuse me snc skills like jumping weightlifting right expression of maximal force the finesse required to dribble a basketball or shoot a basketball every kind of corner of sport and physicality you can think of has some level of representation, some areas deeper than others. And the evidence at this point is quite clear, that when you seek to improve a motor skill and the learning of a motor skill, we should provide external cues rather than internal cues. So for further context, if I'm teaching a sprint, I might say, focus on driving your leg back as fast as you can versus focus on driving the ground back as fast or as explosively as you can. And what my research specifically has shown, the difference between referencing the ground and the leg is about 200 over 10 meters, which relates to one foot difference in distance. And this is watching someone run, focusing on each of those cues. So it's a person compared to themselves. So it's very analogous to a coaching session, giving different cues to see what sticks. So what we know now, just in that one example, is giving an internal cue will reduce the ability of someone to express their maximal speed, in this case, over 10 meters. And this has been shown time and time again. But Rob, here's the scary thing. Here's the bit that, this is why people will hear that and be like, no, that cannot be true. And, and this is the example. In many of those studies, when they look at someone doing an internal cue versus an external cue, in many of them, there's no difference during practice, which means when they're in the moment of learning the skill, both the internal focus group and the external focus group, they're getting better at the same rate. There's no difference. It is only when you bring them back 48, 72 hours later, in weeks in some cases, in some research, that then you see the forest for the trees, whereby it's during the retention and the transfer tests that you see those that were coached with external focus cues actually learned and they learned in a way that it was robust enough that it'll transfer to a similar skill conversely those that were given internal focus cues do not retain nearly as much of the skill that they acquired and this is now defended generally by a theory called the constrained action hypothesis 
And what it states is quite simple, that when you give an internal focus cue, it draws an individual's attention to such a small component of the overall movement that it restricts the body's ability to self-organize and express the movement with all parts being equal. Conversely, it draws their attention to just one subservient goal. So in the case of sprinting, if I told you explode through your hips, yeah, surface value, hips are pretty important for sprinting. But if I'm a novice and I'm hearing that cue for the first time, I'm going to overinvest in the hip portion of the overall execution of the movement, which is involving much more than the hips. Furthermore, when I tell you to think about your hips, rather than seeing the hips operate optimally, which would be the glutes fire and the hip flexors right, start to turn down, if you would, we actually see co-contraction around the joint that we ask them to focus on, which is counterproductive to the fluidity and expression of power that we want. So we could go on this for days, but case in point, if people can walk out of this podcast, there's one thing, and that is notice what you say. Notice how it influences the movement in front of you and notice how it influences movements days to come. That's the key definition of great coaching, right? As John Wooden said, you have not taught until they have learned. And learning needs to occur in a delayed state. Sessions to come or right onto the pitch. When people can just notice what they say and spend more time with external cues, I think they will find it massively benefits their, their coaching as a whole. And the other thing I will say is this about explicit. We coach too much, just like I'm talking too much and answering these questions. It's the only, <laughs> it's the only time I do it is on podcasts. But when I coach, I follow, I follow the 33% rule. Okay? I try to not give cues more than 33% of the time. Every third rep, an athlete's going to hear from me. I need to give them the flashlight in the dark. But at the end of the day, they got to learn to navigate. They got to be the one that's navigating the process. I simply have to bump them when they get off the road. And research has shown this through multiple means that queuing around 33 to 50% of the time is kind of a sweet spot to make sure we empower implicit learning through the right guidance of explicit learning. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to building this story through this, um, through this external queuing, is there a, from your yes. experience, is there a kind of an optimal number of layers on the, on top of, on top of each other to create this, this external queue? As in, at certain times, so, is the kind of punchier the better? Is it at certain times it's, you know, layer upon layer to kind of build uh, this story? Beautiful question. So there's a lot of ways to attack this. You know, the first one is this. When we're teaching a movement for the very first time, I like to use what I call global external cues. So these just start to calibrate the intent of the movement. So if I was teaching change of direction, I might say something like, the line is the enemy. And I'll ask the athletes, what does that mean? And for some of them, it's either I'm going to hit the line as hard as I can or I'm going to get away from it. So we kind of create this global context, which is a story. I like how you put that. It's a story in itself. And sometimes you can tell a story, give an analogy, give a metaphor. And inevitably, as we start to chip away from global to more local structures, meaning more individualized, finite errors, we start to then need to make sure that the language follows suit. So when I teach on this, I provide individuals with what I believe is the anatomy of effective cueing. And the anatomy of effective cueing, and I've observed this pragmatically just through coaching, but also in the evidence, is it follows the three Ds of distance, direction, and description. Meaning every cue, for the most part, if it's a full sentence, will encourage a distance of focus which means they could focus on something close to their body or far away. It includes a direction, meaning that I'm going away from something or towards something. It also includes a descriptor. And the descriptor is oftentimes either an action verb and or generally speaking, it's an analogy or a metaphor itself. So these three elements are critical. Now we know this, distance is a very important variable. So when you're teaching power activities like vertical jumping, or the broad jump, horizontal jumping, you're better off utilizing cues that are farther away from the body. So you're better off putting a cone you know, well out in front of them and saying explode past the cone versus simply telling them to jump as far from the line as possible. Similarly, for a vertical jump, rather than saying you know, jump off the ground as hard as you can or push the ground away, 
you're better off giving them a vertical focus point, which happens naturally in a vertex, and telling them to touch the highest point. Conversely, when you're dealing with an implement, so let's say you're teaching someone how to kick or pass in the case right of rugby, we do both. You're better off with a novice focusing on the ball, focusing on something close to them, whereas as they get better, increase the distance of focus. Instead of focusing on the ball, focus on trajectory, or as they say in motor learning research, the end point. Where do I want the ball to finish? Now, there can be subtleties when teaching this, but we know generally now that distance, increasing distance as someone becomes better when they're trying to, to navigate and implement, improves learning. So that's quite interesting. Now, from their direction, we know nothing about directions, but I'll tell you this. If you have two athletes line up next to each other, A and B, Athlete A sprints out, B follows, okay? And then athlete B sprints out, and A follows. So both per people had a chance to go towards something, right, chase someone, and go away. They're being chased. And you say, which one did you prefer? You're not going to get everyone saying one or the other. There's going to be a mix. So what I find is a variable that I manipulate with my cues is the direction. An athlete, some athletes, I might say, I want you to explode off that line as fast as you can. Or in sprinting, I'll actually put a dowel behind their back thigh to make it from a sensory perspective real. I say, get away from the dowel as fast as you can. I got that from a great sprint coach. Conversely, other guys, I'm saying, imagine you're chasing someone, or I want you to sprint toward the gates. And then finally, the, the descriptor. It's an important one. You, you said a subtle thing. Do you use you know, slow words, fast words? Well, it depends. If I'm teaching a fast movement, I'm going to use fast words. Oftentimes, they have less syllables. Okay, versus if it is a slower movement, I'm going to use a slower word. So for acceleration, I might use words like push and explode. Versus for top end speed sprinting, I might use words especially like snap or spring. And oftentimes I'll change the tone of my voice to reflect the speed of that word. And that matters, again, in calibrating intent. And then the final piece is this. I've written a whole presentation on it most recently, and that is – the use of analogy and metaphor. Because what people don't oftentimes realize, Rob, is motivation is a huge underpinning factor in the efficacy of your motor learning. Which means this, if you understand, if you get to know your athlete, you know their hobbies, their likes, their dislikes, their generation, their culture, you know all these things about them. That then provides you with all the information required to create unique analogies and unique metaphors that takes the familiar from their life and uses it to teach the unfamiliar, which is the movements that we are teaching them in the context of sport and life. And by the nature of it, think about it. How often do you learn something new and not judge it or evaluate it against something you already know? I venture to say you do it with every passing thought. Our brain constantly compares. So what emerging research is showing is that analogies and metaphors specifically are probably the holy grail of external cues and might even need to be a category in and of themselves. And they should be used early and often because if we can create a story that makes it more memorable, which helps information stick, which helps learning transfer and be retained. How, how does all that differ with with youth athletes, is there more of an emphasis on, on one of them Ds? Is there, does, it, does it completely change for, for the kind so, of younger age, younger age guys? It's a really good question. So when, when we're talking about cueing, as, I've ta- as I said this before, communication is not what is said. It's what is heard. Now, now, people oftentimes say that that's my quote. That's not my quote. I think I got that from an NLP book somewhere. So just so we're clear. But <laughs> I, I, I love it because it stuck with me. And we have to really appreciate the concept of understanding. So we have to respect the fact that oftentimes we are teaching movements that the athlete has not had, had any experience with, at least in a formal sense of learning them. So we're already dealing with novelty in the movement. And now on top of that, we are using words. We're communicating in a way to teach them this novel movement. Where we're not doing ourselves any favors if we are communicating through cues, instructions, and feedback in such a way where we're using language, examples, and analogies that they are not familiar with. So arguably, and this gets back to your question, the older the person is, 
okay, independent of their experience with movement, the easier it will be to communicate with them from the simple fact that they will have more experiences. And thus, through the use of analogy and metaphor, you'll be able to leverage those experiences, again, what we call their personal familiar, to teach them this unfamiliar. Now, conversely, you have a little athlete. They're eight to 10 years old. And you start giving analogies about a rocket ship, a car, a helicopter. Maybe this kid's never been on a plane, okay? So even though we might think it's commonplace and they might have toys of it at home, if we start giving all these analogies and metaphors, they might not literally understand what we're saying. So it's interesting because there are a very few studies, Rob, that have been done on kids under 10, okay? But in some of them, they have shown that kids tend to respond better to internal cues. Some might say, oh, okay, that's interesting. That's a vote for internal cues. Well, no. <laughs> what I say is this. They might be familiar with internal cues. Do you know why? Because when I say arm and leg, they know what their arm is. They know what their leg is. But if I start giving them analogies or referencing things that are too abstract, like push the ground away or snap the barbell overhead, just think about that. For me to say snap the barbell overhead, what we have to understand is the act of physically snapping and the speed and the tone that comes off of snapping our fingers is somehow representative of how we coordinate the hips, the knees, the ankles, the arms, and the barbell all together. That takes quite a bit of abstraction. That takes quite a bit of cognitive finesse that we might take for granted. So when you tell a little kid, snap the bar overhead, they might not understand what you mean by that. So I believe the research that's pointing to internal cues working better, potentially, and mind you, it was done in dart throwing, nothing against dart throwing. I know that they actually love it in this part of the world. We do. Uh, the internal cues, you do, you have full arenas for it. <laughs> the internal cues, I believe, work because kids understand head, shoulders, knees, and toes, right? They're taught that, they're taught that story, that song in school. So I think when it comes to kids, Rob, it's about truly understanding the age, their experience level, and utilizing age-appropriate language. Now, we're not talking about swearing and not swearing, but getting to know what are these kids into? What are they playing? What, what kind of games do they play at school? And referencing things that are appropriate to teach their, take their familiar to teach the unfamiliar. And that's what it keeps coming back to. It's not so much age as it is what are they familiar with that we can use to create a comparison to what they're unfamiliar with around the movements that we're teaching. That's great. Thank you very much for that, Nick. Um, some great answers. I just want to, I'm just conscious of time. I know you've got uh, a child watching watching Disney films um, <laughs> <laughs> and potentially, um, what does she call it with the, with the sugar? What did you say? The, oh, oh, Spiking. We, 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 talk, Spiking. we talked about when she has her, her dessert, she, she knows about blood sugar, so she always wants to ensure that she's not going to spike. So she balances yeah. that with her veggies and her, her movement. <laughs> yeah. So she could be spiking in front of some Disney yeah. films at the minute. Yeah. So I'm just conscious <laughs> of that. But I just want to um, – I'm basically going to steal Mike Robertson's uh, – one of Mike Robertson's questions that you answered um, on his podcast, which was what advice would you give to a, a younger self – if you were able to to talk to that that younger Nick uh, in 2016, what would be that? And that's obviously going to transfer to the the uh, advice you would give to younger coaches. Oh goodness, uh, that's a tough one. And you know, Timothy Ferris oftentimes asks that to people as well. And I've there's an answer that some people have been giving lately that I'm going to steal. You know, in terms of advice for myself, I, I got to be honest, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to change anything uh -huh. because at this point, every positive and negative experience has netted out to guiding me on a path that I've been, been very happy with. I think what I would look back and reinforce probably is, is a better word for the younger version of myself is Pence. I think oftentimes for people in every field, we are, we're taught to rush. And we feel like we need to rush and we need to keep up with the Joneses, as would say. And I think especially now with the internet and the rate at which information comes at us, it gives us this false impression that 
and one individual somehow producing the internet and doing all these things at once when the reality is that's not the case. And we're in a field that takes maturing. It takes maturing to understand communication, relationship building, and just simply acquiring and applying all of these principles. So I would say it's this, it's to be patient, it's to some, sometimes give yourself credit when you don't want to, to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, okay, I'm doing right by where I'm at in my life. I'm working as hard as I can and not be too hard on yourself. And probably the other thing that I would reinforce is, is the simple one word of action. Every single day, what is at least the single action that I'm going to take right, to get better? And I believe, again, with the amount of information that comes at us, we can get derailed so quickly where we start living someone else's story, someone else's narrative, and we forget about the story that we're trying to write for ourselves. So I think through patience and the purposeful selection of a daily action that is relevant to our current practice, those would probably be the areas that I would highlight as being essential for development in any field. And I would remind myself of that, the younger version. Like that answer. Like that answer, Nick. So you did some um, speaking a couple of weeks ago in um, back in the US. Have you, got yeah, any other, have you got any other speaking engagements coming up? Yep, I'm going to be popping back over to the United States uh, again next month for the Rhode Island Perform Better. I'm going to be going over to Munich, Germany for the Germany Perform Better, as well as I have a number of kind of, if you would, I, th I think they're going to be open seminars. One's going to be in the UK, and then later on this year, somewhere up in Scandinavia, I'll be doing one, and I'll post all those on Facebook and Twitter as they get locked in. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And, and where can people, I'm sure they know exactly where they can keep the day with you as a person, but just want to remind them of the best places to keep yeah. in touch with you. I'm a big kind of Twitter fanatic, so anything that I'm doing goes on there. So at Nick Winkleman, and that's E L, not L E. Correct. On, on those, I'll be speaking to Winkleman. I'll be speaking we, to the L E guy later on on Skype. Yeah, 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 you will. <laughs> so at Nick Winkleman, and then uh, Facebook. I keep I use Facebook professionally, so I keep everything up to date there. So those are the two mediums, and hopefully a website to follow in the coming year. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for uh, giving me your time, Nick, and I'll let you get back to uh, some Disney films for this evening. Uh -huh. But um, appreciate your time, and um, yeah, we'll keep in touch. Yep, honored and humbled. Thanks for all you do, Rob. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Nick. See you later. Thanks for tuning in to episode 93 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Nick. Two massive thank yous uh, before we end the show. Uh, massive thanks to Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard and Coach Me Plus both for sponsoring the episode today. So if you are still enjoying the Pace Performance podcast, get over to iTunes, give an honest rating and review. I'd really appreciate it. It'd help other people to get to know about the podcast uh, and share the information that the great guests uh, share every week. So again, I hope you enjoyed the chat with Nick and I will speak to you in episode 94.